standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this, our second International Women's Day podcast 2021. If you missed yesterday's podcast, then when you finish listening to this, maybe you should remedy that. In it, Mickey talks to the feminist lawyer, campaigner for women's rights and founder of the Centre for Women's Justice, Harriet Wistrich. And that is a great lesson. So when you finish this one, you know what to do. In this episode, I am talking to the actress Katie Wicks. She of Ghosts and Stathlet's Flats and many, many other things. We chatted about Katie's new book, Delicacy, a memoir about cake and death, which is out on April the 15th and is an absolutely cracking read. I genuinely loved it. It's really insightful, it's really funny, and I think it says some important things about some important issues, some of which we go on to discuss in the podcast, particularly the issue of body image. We've plenty of other stuff coming up for the rest of the week. Jen will be chatting to Laura Hoggins, the personal trainer and co-director of The Foundry Gym about strong women as well as Dr Hannah Lawson, Senior Lecturer in the History of Ideas at King's College London about feminist writing through the ages. I've been on the Zoom with Kerrang DJ Sophie Kay to talk about women who rock and about female representation in rock music across the board, in the crowd, on the stage, in promotion, in journalism. We had a really interesting chat. And finally, Mickey is talking to the writer Gabby Hinslith about Betty Friedan. So keep your ears out for those or even better, press subscribe and then the work's done for you. I hope you enjoy listening to me chat to Katie as much as I enjoy chatting to her. Until tomorrow. Okay, so the first thing I want to say to you, Katie, is that this is great. Like genuinely, (laughs) I haven't said this to you yet because I felt like I should say it where everyone could hear it. I really, really enjoyed it. And I think it's an example of how great I thought it was. I was telling a story on the podcast just the other day about how when I read A Confederacy of Dunces the first time, mm. which mm. is one of my favourite books. Oh, wow. I've never the, read it. I just get that out of the way. It's great. It's really, it's really funny. When I first read it, I realised that what I had was an early proof of it. I think I must have bought it in a charity shop. So all of the pages were in the wrong order. And I enjoyed oh, yeah. it so much that I actually persevered and read it like a choose your own adventure book (laughs) and whenever I tell that story everyone's like why did you do that and I was like because Confederacy Dunces is a great book and I didn't want to waste the time going out and buying a new one when I could just be reading this book and I would say Katie the proof copy I got of your book had a load of pages in the wrong order and I read on through I persevered because it's a really, really good book. Oh, thank you. God, how inadequate of me to have sent those out. I mean, I, I did notice. I don't think it was I, literally I, you, was it? No, it wasn't literally me. <laughs> <laughs> right, why am I taking the blame? God, that's typical. Well, me. we'll get on to that in a minute. Yeah, <laughs> we'll get on to my codependency. But, no, but I only realised that there was some mistake. I think it was one chapter. I hope it was just the one It was chapter. just chapter 10, but, but my, that in many ways felt like yeah. a linchpin chapter of the thing. Yeah. So I had to read it. My friend said to me, oh, it wasn't so bad. I could work it out. But yeah, I'm I'm sorry about that. That was It wasn't designed to make you feel bad about that. It was designed it's to... It's more reflective of how my mind works. So there's, there's that at least. <laughs> yeah, it was worth persevering with. Now, we talked, you were on our Zoomcast back at the end of last year. 
you and Rachel Paris were on together. Mm-hmm. And you talked on that about how this book had quite a long labour, essentially. Yeah. And people can go back and listen to that and they should listen to it anyway, because it's very funny. So how does it feel now you are... I don't know what the word is, crowning or something. Now the book is nearly <laughs> here and nearly in people's hands. <laughs> now, now the waters have broke. It's not so much dopamine. It's more like relief, I think. Like the the longest to-do list has been completed is how it feels. Yeah, I feel like few got away with it again. It's nice not to, because I think the, the publishers were amazing and really understanding I missed I probably missed every deadline by weeks if not months and they were really patient with me it took about two years to write because things kept things kept on happening Mm. that I would have to write in it was a sort of like you know live processing as it was happening things that were too important not to include to the point where I just didn't you know know it got to the point where I was still writing and you know I, I think I finished the final version in about May so it was kind of got to the point where I was thinking, well, do I include the bad deck now? Like, yeah. And I thought, no, I won't. Because that's, that's that would be a different kind of book, I think. It would date it so specifically. And I don't think that was the thing I was trying to achieve. I had to have surgery in the middle of writing it. And then someone else died. And, you know, these things kept happening. And I kept having to ask more time off. And then I would feel really bad about asking for more time. And they were really understanding. But that's crazy that I felt bad about asking for more time when that was sort of what the book was about. But I think the the best bit is just getting feedback and showing friends and, and people's reaction. It's scary. It feels really vulnerable. And because it is very honest and, you know, there are points where I'm quite honest about my fragility, I suppose. And a few people were like, are you okay? And I didn't really think about that because by the end I did think of it as a kind of piece of work. I didn't really think of it as a, it's not like it's a cry for help or anything like, you know, it's a really considered curated thing. And there were lots of things I'd never talk about that I would never put in the book. So I think it's all things I think that I'm comfortable saying that and don't seem that shocking to me. But I forget that to someone else that might be like, oh, I can't believe you said that. What you've just <laughs> said there is true, because there are things that you say in this that, that aren't shocking necessarily to me. But I yeah. think that they need to be said. And a lot of those things are about body image so the surtitle is that the word I'm looking for surtitle probably is of your book it's a memoir about cake and death and obviously cake plays a role which people will get when they read it and probably make people go out and buy cake which is what happened to me when I was reading it (laughs) that's great any excuse I think for me If you grew up as a young girl in the 70s, the 80s or the 90s, every adult woman you knew was on a diet. Mm -hmm. And it fucks you up. Yeah, yeah. I guess one of the things I was sort of trying to do was was kind of show how these small, subtle things have devastating consequences and affect every aspect of how you feel about yourself. When you're walking around in a a body that it doesn't feel yours it just feels like a sort of construction somehow and I agree I think the messages from our like mothers whether they mean to or not it feels like the message we get so early on is you know this is a constant struggle and you should sort of contain yourself and your appetite and there's different rules for men as there are for women that's how it felt to me and that's before you even get to media and images and so on I think it just 
I'm sure it starts with your mother's body. And I read somewhere that Susie Orbach is writing a new book about mothers and daughters. And I was like, maybe it was a book or an article, I'm not sure. But I thought, yeah, those those messages. And also, and she she talks about this in, um, I think the book's called What Women Want or What Do Women Want? One of them's the Mel Gibson film. (laughs) (laughs) Choose carefully, people. <laughs> yeah, there's only one right option that can <laughs> make you go the right path. But she talks about the sort of complexity that our mothers teach us that our needs are somehow bad or outrageous to have these needs met. Complex relationship we have with our own needs and wants, like feeling bad for having the need that yeah. we should be independent. She talks a lot about eating disorders being the consequence of of not being able to be okay with those needs and not being able to meet your own needs. And I'm explaining it really poorly, but yeah, I think it's a really complex thing. But yeah, I I feel like there's some people who think fat shaming is not that bad or that it might be useful. Mm. And I guess I wanted to show like how it's, it can ruin your life (laughs) when you're fat shamed. Like I, I think it can, and that it's not, it's not nothing these small little things add up to feeling like you can't do things because of your body. And it's just, it's really sad. It makes me really angry that if I'd had slightly different messages, then I wouldn't have struggled like that. And I think it's, it's seen as so normal, isn't it? That mm. women just will diet. It's seen as completely um, normal female experience. No one's sort of saying, oh, maybe it shouldn't be like that. There's this classic story that my family liked to tell about me that I was about four or five and my dad came in from work and I was very upset and he asked me what was wrong and I said that my mum and my auntie Tina were going on a diet and they said that I couldn't go with them. And I don't know what I thought a diet was. Yeah. (laughs) Some sort of aeroplane or I don't know, but I thought it sounded amazing because they were talking really enthusiastically about it, but I wasn't allowed to go. And when I think now about that, I think, well, then I don't think there was a a point in my life where I wasn't aware that diets existed then. If I was that little and they were talking about diets Mm -hmm. around me and that was the first time I clocked, then basically I I knew from a very young age that women diet. Yeah, I think I was about seven when someone first told me that there was, and it's like a, you know, a, a moment in the book where someone says I'm too big and, I re- I remember it as a real before and tree of knowledge type moment, mm. a kind of before and after. It was a sort of feeling of, yeah, like losing innocence of going, oh, right, okay. Right, so this is a thing. Like how much space I take up is directly linked to what I'm allowed to do, how I can feel about myself today, all that kind of stuff, you know. Mm. That said, we're saying this about women, you know, introducing that sort of thing to to their daughters. I mean, obviously, it does affect their sons as well. But actually, also, it it comes from the men around you, um, which it definitely did in your your family, didn't it, too? Yeah, because I think it was seen as something that sort of women did, almost like maybe that they enjoyed doing this. (laughs) (laughs) It's also weird that I realised that, um, and I haven't really worked this out in my head, but I realised that it's weird that I'm saying all this. And then I... I've also chosen a job where I have to like show my body on a television. Mm. And one thing I have is like, there's that kind of Freudian idea of like mastery over the trauma. (laughs) So it's like a way of 
Well, I don't know. I think it's it's really, I actually think it's really weird to choose a job where people are looking at your body when I have felt so badly about my body. And I haven't really worked out why I've done that. I think it's some sort of, it's almost like some sort of punishment because it's not like those feelings have gone away forever. Have you only ever done stuff with your clothes on? In my life. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Are you a never nude? <laughs> professionally I mean. <laughs> there were cameras but it wasn't for telly no um <laughs> no I've no I've done I've done a, actually I've done a couple of sex scenes but it was completely you know like you well they no one can see what I'm doing but kind of you know like shoulder, bare shoulders yeah duvet I did one once and it was it was handled so so badly it was really awkward for me and the other actor it was it was really it was handled really really badly but it, I'd never done one before I was quite young and only now do I think oh my god that was awful no one told us because there's so many things you can do under the duvet you can put cushions between actors you can do all this mm. stuff so but no one said that so we were basically <laughs> dry humping <laughs> We were basically um what's that word like thro like f is it frotting? Frotting, <laughs> yeah. God, I haven't heard that word for a long time. I think, if I think that's what it means. This is of sorry, a silly tangent. It was it was actually borderline humiliating, but anyway, no, I've not I've not done any like nudity. I've only done like sort of cheeky things. But but I remember once really early on, I mean this is awful. This is so awful actually when I say that loud. I don't think I've ever said that aloud. Really early on I remember I was still living in Cardiff and there was a sort of young scriptwriter, and she wanted to make this short film and there were maybe three different female parts in it and she wanted to meet with a couple of actors and we all met her somewhere and she sort of would talk about the script and and um, because it's so awful I mean I was probably about 21 and and I read the script and I think they had to be in swimming costumes or something or maybe not even that I think it was it's like it was summer and we were wearing these matching vests or something. And I turned it down because I could not handle the idea of having bare arms and wow. being filmed. I think that's how bad it was that it was like, um, oh, I'd just rather not be in it. And I was quite rude to the woman because I couldn't articulate that. But I remember just in the middle of the meeting, like seeing what they were wearing and going, no, I don't want to do this, mm. which is just crazy because you know my art like my arms are completely normal arms but yeah I think I just got it into my head it was just ruled my whole kind of I guess like body dysmorphia and I don't know at what point it tips over into that and I find it really interesting what the distinction is because I know that body dysmorphia is almost has more in common with OCD and that it's like very repetitive intrusive thoughts and a lot of anxiety and I think at its worst it felt like that like a lot of um being unable to concentrate on other things because yeah. you're just thinking about how you look from every angle and stuff like that. And it sounds, there's a shame in it because it sounds sort of self-absorbed, but it's not good self-absorbed. <laughs> it's like yeah. horrible yeah. self-absorbed. You say that about the industry. There's the, I don't know if you watch 30 Rock, but there's a hilarious bit yeah. in 30 Rock where Jenna puts on a bit of weight Oh, and yeah, Jack yeah. says yeah. to her, you either need to lose 30 pounds or gain mm -hmm. 60 because there's yeah. no place for anything in between on television. Yeah. And there's something in your book where someone said pretty mm -hmm. much the same thing yeah. to you. It was about 10 years ago. And I really don't think I think things have changed now that that's not the case. I don't think that um, 
I was going to say when I walk into a room, I think all things are on Zoom, but I don't think really anyone would say that now or even think that because it does feel, well, I guess, first of all, you hope that someone's hired you because of your like performing, performing skills. But I, I don't think that people would be so kind of extreme. It feels like there's more like normal bodies on TV. Well, that's than there were like crazy good ago. news because it's just yeah. n- not that the idea that you can only be fat or thin and there is no middle ground. Yeah. I mean, not and that I don't I if... those good words particularly, but. Yeah. 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 That, yeah. That exactly. That kind of binary thing. Yeah. Of, um, yeah. It's really difficult. And I, I, I still get sent parts through where it will say, you know, there'll be a really disparaging physical description. And when I see that, I sort of think, well, actually like, I'm not overweight, so I think it would be almost irresponsible to play a part where I'm sort of going, yeah, this is, this is, I agree, this is Oh, like when terrible. Renee Zellweger was in Bridget Jones and was supposed to be overweight. and Yeah, yeah. and she was like a size 14 or yeah. whatever. Um, I've been many different sizes in my life and it's, it's not about that. <laughs> the thing about, you know, big uh, girls, let's put it that way, on television is it kind of feeds into this idea that something else that you mentioned, albeit quite briefly in your book, but the idea that your personality is linked to your weight and the thinner you get, the less fun you are, the less funny you are and the bigger you get, the more sort of ebullient. That was something that you actually had convinced yourself of at at one point, which is not great. I mean, it's tricky because I definitely was really desperately unhappy at my smallest partly because you're just not you haven't got the energy to do anything or go anywhere or say anything and I was cold all the time and you know fragile I guess and I guess it just yeah it really there's such a link between depression and not eating enough yeah I felt like I'd been lied to because it was really hard to enjoy being in this like (laughs) this acceptable body and there were there were points in my I mean I talk about it a little bit that I what kind of changed everything for me was was finding Susie Allback's writing and trying to do something like intuitive eating. It was a way out of eating disorders for me and brought about balance and so on. But it, it meant that it meant letting go of control. So my 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 body, you know, it fluctuated much more, kind of went up and down. But for the first time ever, I was able to remain uh, my self-esteem was able to remain separate and intact from my body and that felt really really powerful and then I got a bit bigger and then it became like a sort of political statement and I liked being bigger and I felt like it was a rebellious and I felt like it was a fuck you and I thought anyone trying to you know bring me down was the enemy and that felt good too and then I got really ill and then couldn't digest food I had to have my gallbladder removed and I lost so much weight because I couldn't eat. And it was really weird because people thought I'd done it deliberately. And then there was like compliments. And I'd think, are you kidding? Like I'm, I'm, you know, I have, I'm in agony and I have to have surgery. It feels for me like it's not even about the size anymore. Because I'm so aware that I, for part of me, when I was writing it, I thought to someone else, they could accuse me of sort of having thin privilege because I you know, I lost weight recently when I was ill and I don't weigh myself or anything anymore. I try not to think about my weight, but I 
yeah it's it's difficult like I wrote part of it bigger and part of it smaller mm. so it's kind of a weird experience for me as well talking about weight can I ask you in that case how lockdown's been for you because the conversation about how much we've all put on in lockdown is ever present on Twitter and I can't I can't make my mind up because although I think it's perfectly fine to make a joke about yourself being like not fitting into your trousers or whatever it is that you you do. But I also think it does also feed into this idea that obviously any gaining of weight is a terrible thing. So I I, I personally have mixed feelings about it. My weight just was completely stable throughout lockdown. And I think that's because of intuitive eating. I think that I've I don't comfort eating well I I haven't binged since in about nine years which feels like a huge achievement so I know that I kind of can't really I I have to stop it pretty quickly Mm. if it it feels like it's going to happen and I know how to do that now so I tend not to overeat but there's other things I would sort of do for comfort now I've sort of switched across addiction whatever that says so I can really understand why people turn to food and there were a couple of times I just, and like a lot of female friends of mine were saying that it, that lockdown had either triggered overeating or undereating or some sort of difficult relationship with food again, which would make sense because it's so much about control. It's all you can control, mm. I guess, when there's chaos everywhere. So I think it's really understandable. And it will always be my Achilles heel, I think, but I, I managed it really well in lockdown. I didn't, it didn't, it wasn't so bad. Partly because I was writing, I think that helped me. It almost made me accountable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. To have to sort of journal, but like the national conversation, I, I don't know. I, I just, I sort of hate it all. <laughs> <laughs> like it never feels very progressive. It, it feels better than it ever was, but. Even if it does feel progressive at points, someone will always swoop in to tell you why what you've said is actually really problematic. And you think, oh, I, I don't know why I even get into this. Yeah, and I I feel like it was okay to... I sort of feel like maybe the artist doesn't have to have the answers. No. <laughs> yeah. That's fine. And I suppose I'm just like, I'm not sort of a like, polemicist or something. Like, I guess I just wanted to say, well, this was what it's like for me and this is my experience of it and this is what helped me and this is what I think doesn't help I like shaming people or I think that's all you can do because in truth you know when you're talking about like cross addiction or if you're talking about a reward system you give yourself for having got through the day you get to eat three magnums or whatever it is that your brain has has done you actually have to live that yourself it's the same as you can't make yeah. someone give up drinking you can't yeah. people have to come to the decision themselves that yeah they either want to either lose weight or get a bit more healthy which doesn't necessarily always equal losing weight it could be you are just I mean that's part of my problem has been I've put on weight and locked down because I haven't taken very much exercise so if I start taking exercise yeah. it won't be because I want to lose weight it'll be because I need to start taking some exercise because it's not particularly yeah, healthy I... I know a few women who, um, excuse me, I sort of half burped. <laughs> yeah, I know a few women, I'll start it again, <laughs> you don't want someone burping, who um, I guess they're their way out of, I guess I'd say disordered eating. I like using the phrases like interchangeably, but I guess they do mean different things, yeah. eating disorders and disordered eating. Their way out of 
having a horrible relationship with food just through exercise, which I think makes a lot of sense. There's so many other it's but it's interesting, like there's a whole there's a whole passage. I had this kind of strange encounter with a personal trainer, which I wrote about, which is really fun, but it's it's really rare that you find you know, like that there are women exercising for other reasons than to to lose weight or to change part of their body. Like Janine Roth, whose books I also love, she's another amazing writer, American writer about food. And she just talks about the idea that our bodies are this like constant project that we should be doing something about every day mm. to try and tighten and improve some area. And it's so liberating if you can like, just to stop the project yeah (laughs) you know it's like you notice all these other things going on and I think it's interesting I was reading recently about body neutrality because I guess body positivity is like the buzzword and I think it's probably ultimately great but there's also this thing body neutrality which I didn't know about which is more sort of I'm going to explain it really badly but more kind of um and stop me if you Nordine I've never heard of it so I'm interested (laughs) Well, it's, I think it's really useful because I think it's more like saying, actually, I don't want to talk about my body. I don't want my body to represent anyone. I don't want this to be focused on, actually. And also sometimes it's that thing of it's a lot of pressure. If you can't manage body positivity, then you feel worse. So body neutrality is like a way of saying, do you know what? Body positivity is not achievable for me today, but body neutrality is. <laughs> yeah. And I sort of quite like that. And I think body neutrality, thats that feels good because that just covers so many intersectional things yeah. as well. Agreed. In the book, you talk about how, obviously, the way that you felt about your body at certain periods of your life actually impacted on the decisions you made and the things you did. Yeah. But I thought another part of the book where you talk about how class has impacted the way that you respond to the world. I mean, that hits that you hit the nail right on the head when you say that you had zero entitlement. And I think that's really interesting because literally we were just talking before this about how my mum had her jab today. And my mum ended up having her jab because she ended up phoning and they said, oh yeah, I don't know why you haven't been phoned. You need to come down here. And that's, having just read that in your book, I immediately thought, yeah, that's something about the way we are, that we just kind of just, someone will ring eventually. And I know other people who perhaps had a quite middle-class upbringing that would have been on the phone saying, why hasn't my mum had her jab yet? And yet Mm -hmm. I didn't do that. And I think that idea of of zero entitlement is really, really interesting. Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, I grew up in South Wales. My mum was actually quite middle class but my dad was just from like you know a mining town and was as working class as you can get so it was a kind of funny mix we felt in the middle and I I think I sound you know I think I actually do sound quite middle class to to anyone listening so I don't want to but we did I guess the thing is I because we didn't really have much money they were quite arty but we I certainly didn't feel like I guess it was just a culture of um, not expecting things. It just felt like, I guess what I mean is I don't want to, I don't want people to think I'm trying to portray myself as some work. No, 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 I, I, I know, I know what you but, mean. Um, 
there was just a sort of culture of all these things aren't for me. You know, that's mm. that's not for me. I, I wouldn't have the confidence to do that. And that's a bit like pretentious and people will take the piss out of me and I don't want to do that. But in the book where it, it really showed up in a sort of medical thing where there's like sort of obedience and a sort of used to being told what to do and by authority figures. Yeah. And just like, OK, well, I'll wait here for 10 hours. Don't mind me. And when I was in hospital recently, I, went, I had to go to A&E because I didn't know, but my gallbladder was like, infected. And um, I just sat in agony waiting for <laughs> hours, didn't say anything, thought, or well, someone, they won't have forgotten me. And I passed out. <laughs> That's when someone came and got me. And yeah, it's just that thing. And I see it in, it's a kind of middle-class dad thing, I'd say, that my dad never had, that I always felt really sad about, of kind of like, excuse me, we've been waiting here for an hour. Yeah. Yeah, it's always just like, oh, no, don't make a fuss. Don't, don't make a fuss. fuss. Yeah, exactly that. Because you, you mention it with, you say with medical, because you mention it in the book, it's to do with your mum's cancer treatment. Yeah. And it made me think because my mum had cancer. My mum had cancer at the same time that my dad died. So I became like the mm. the point person. I was like okay. her, her person who went to all her appointments with her. And I never once questioned whether this was right or whether I should have a second opinion, like you say. I yeah. just, I was just so grateful they were going to help us. And about a year after that, I interviewed a woman who had had a double mastectomy because she'd been identified as having the BRCA gene, which makes her more okay, susceptible yeah. to breast cancer. And I asked her, she was American, I asked her for some advice for anyone else who might find them in that situation. And her first bit of advice was shop around for a doctor. Make sure you've got the right doctor because she was American. And, and I thought, that's yeah. so weird. That's so odd that we just go in and say, like, whoever, whoever can help yeah, me, it, just, it's just come and help me. It's also something, isn't it? It's so vulnerable and it's so emotional when you sat in that room. It's almost like I felt like I, want, I wanted some sort of paternal figure mm. to go, don't worry, we've all got it in hand. And it's, that, it's also that weird thing, isn't it, of when it, especially when it comes to... You know, like doctors have such like authority over us, don't they? That you just sort of like, it's like one of my friends is like, I, I don't trust GPs. I never go to GPs. Yeah. She's so funny. She's like, what do they know about women's bodies? For God's sake, they don't know anything. Or like a male GP, she just like doesn't trust them. Yeah. But also it's, it's really hard to listen and take information on board as well and make decisions, I think, when mm. you're in that kind of environment. And also it's, you sort of think, oh, well, it's science. So what am I going to, what am yeah. I going to like say? Oh, I don't agree. <laughs> yeah. I don't think Estelle would do that. Come on, we're leaving. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's just not an option. You're just like, yeah. yeah. No, it's Because lockdown's really highlighted that. I think it, one of the things that I've learned is that actually we're, yeah. we're, we're actually a, a nation that kind of welcomes rules. We like to think of ourselves yeah. as rule breakers, but... We actually just want somebody to tell us where we can go and what time we can do that and how many times a day we can do that. And all of the decisions are taken out of our hands. And I'm not saying we, because I don't necessarily mean me, but I mean as a nation. I absolutely hate this time because I keep joking about how one of the reasons that I never got married, one of the reasons that I never wanted a full-time partner was because I never wanted anybody to be able to tell me what to do. And now I'm essentially married to the government. And I have to, the number of times I actually want to do something and I have to Google whether it's okay for me to do that thing. And I really resent it. I follow the rules, but I resent it. We are married to the government. You're absolutely right. But I'm really embarrassed how much I think I trust authority. I hate it. I wish I was more rebellious. Like this same friend is just naturally so suspicious of authority. And, you know, so like so often it turns out they were right to be suspicious and, 
yeah it's horrible I think I really thrive in like institutions (laughs) 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 because I can't like set timetables for myself (laughs) or anything like that (laughs) but not the army I'd hate to be in the army (laughs) I'd rather be in prison. In prison, yeah. I, actually, that said, I also have the ability to just put up with stuff. So, mm. I actually, it, like I say, in many ways, I think I could probably thrive in, maybe not in prison, but. But yeah, no, you're so right. I think it's also this sort of weird thing we have with science. Like, if you were shit at science in school, like I was, then just for the rest of your life, you just kind of go, "Oh my god!" Like, if a scientist has said that, bloody hell, it must be, it must be true. Yeah. I had to see a physio last week because I'd sort of hurt my neck and actually it was trying to do like yoga with Adrian at home I just really overdid it (laughs) but also I think writing the book I remember we talked about this last time and I think you'd said that Sarah Pascoe had written it all like lying on her stomach yeah my book or something I have a similar kind of thing have I been you know writing all these like stupid positions and of course now my neck is painful anyway when he was helping me with that he said try and look at the news every three days (laughs) Because he just is seeing lots of people walking around, you know, like with shoulders up to their ears, their bodies full of stress. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's you know, the other thing is that I, I suppose I, I don't even know if I did, if this was in the book in the end, but um, just how aware I am of how um, my body feels like it's this battleground of these kind of things that have happened, not not just the body shaming but I think you know stress and trauma yeah it's all kind of in there and I just started reading I think it's called the body keeps score yeah it's just so much about just how much yeah like the body is carrying around all this stress and trauma and like I do notice that sometimes like the solution is is kind of physical and it's it's amazing how like I've been gently getting back into exercise again and sometimes that sorts me out more than seeing this therapist or you know meditation all these other things that are on my list of things to do mm. sometimes it just feels like what I really wanted was just to kind of run around outside for 20 minutes it's amazing how it seems to short circuit my brain yeah in such a powerful way but also I quite often cry after exercise which makes me no, think there's, like, there's all this stuff coming out you know so it's a real like holistic thing isn't it but I don't, I don't really know why I brought that up. <laughs> There's another nail that you hit really squarely on the head in this book when you say, we need to sever the tie between applause <laughs> and self-worth. Now, it's funny how authoritative it sounds when I hear it back. It's very authoritative. And given that it was written before this, it seems like it's a lesson that people would have been smart to learn before this because yeah. you're working in an industry where... Work and mental health are particularly closely tied. But yeah. in the art, where your feedback comes in a uh, a way that it's not like a statistic that you could say you were 96% successful, it's yeah. it comes like this, generally, or reviews or tweets yeah. or, hey, I really love this. How have you got on with that not being in your life? And how do you think the rest of the industry's got on yeah, without I- that? I've loved it. I've really loved it. I felt like there's no well, pressure. Well, you were ahead of the curve. You already knew this fact. <laughs> yeah. well, yes and no. I mean, I have good days and bad days with it. I, I feel like when I first sort of started out and I would be, would meet, you know, 
people off the telly for the first time or be working with people off the telly. I remember being so struck by how unhappy and insecure and fucked up like famous people were (laughs) and being like, oh, my God. But almost very like I felt very black and white about it. Like I was just so, so certain that it didn't mean anything to be them and that it was meaningless and it almost made me feel not smug but it was kind of like oh I've learned this really important thing so early on famous people are so insecure and unhappy they're they're awful (laughs) (laughs) I don't feel that way now some of my best friends are famous people but yeah so I remember like for ages I just thought well I like that my friends find me funny or my friends think I'm good at something and I kind of wanted respect, I think, but that's as far as it went. I wasn't bothered about getting attention. But now I sort of think that it was sometimes almost a defence mechanism, so I wouldn't have to try if I mm. sort of think, oh, I won't take any risks. I don't want to be in that, whatever. But now I think I've got a bit older. I feel like, actually, I would quite like to do that. And I am gutted that I didn't get to do that. And um it's given me more admiration for people that go for it and deal with the pressures of fame. I think it's really hard. I was going with this. I have good days and bad days with it. Sometimes I just love hiding. And then sometimes I'm like fixated on how many likes I'm getting. And I'm just like, hit, hit, yes, yes, yes. And I'm obsessed with checking. And it's like a tiny little boost for the day. So it's just, it's very sort of up and down. I have good days and bad days with it. Can I ask you what it's like you are going back filming next week? I mean, I take it you're excited. Yeah, I'm excited about like being, you know, sociable, sociable as we as we can be, I guess. We'll all have to be like standing around with like a meter ruler stick between us, whatever we'll have to do. Yeah, I'm excited. I think it will be, I think it will just be quite surreal. I can't imagine what it's like going to be like filming under these conditions. I mean, obviously, you know. I'm, I'm assuring everyone it's very, very safe and not breaking any rules. Otherwise, it just wouldn't be possible. I'm relieved to be having some money coming in. I'm like excited about seeing everyone. And I think it's really fun. You know, it's a really funny, fun show. So um, and it it feels quite sort of low pressure. There's a big gang of us and, you know, it's really nice. It's not like sometimes like, you know, it's nice to be in the, the lead in something. But I think sometimes also... Well, I guess it ties into what I was just saying. Like, I think younger me would have actually found that too stressful. And I think ambitious people would have found that weird because that's quite meant to be your goal. But I think that I I like the fact that I've, like, taken it at a pace where I just feel, like, lucky to have gone from thing to thing. And now it feels like, oh, yeah, I could be the lead in something and I could deal with that. That's fine. I know what this is about now. And there's so many, there's so much TV. It doesn't even feel like... I think even if you were a lead in something, I don't think it would like <laughs> change your life in the same way that... Yeah, uh, there, there are sometimes I will watch a television programme and it will have someone in it and I will Google them and it will have a list of 30 or 40 things and I've never seen any of them. And yeah. I'm like, how can... I, I review TV, like, for a living for years. <laughs> how can I not even know that this guy even exists? Yeah, because there's just, so much TV I've never seen. Because maybe he all his stuff's on... I don't know, some channel I don't watch. Perhaps they make exclusively for Channel 5 or something. Apple TV, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't have Sky. I've never watched anything on Sky. Never seen really? it. Really? Yeah. 
don't think yeah, I don't think I've watched anything on Sky. Um Yeah. I can't remember what the question was. Yeah, it's, it's exciting to be filming. <laughs> I bet, I bet it is. Go back to your book, which is out on the 15th of April. It's called Delicacy. Uh, there's a lot of things that are very personal to you that you, you write about in it. What, what for you was the hardest thing for you to get down on paper? Yeah, it's funny because I, I sort of panicked last minute and took some stuff out before I handed it in. Not so much stuff about myself, although I, you know, I thought there's so many things I would never be prepared to write about, which might be surprising because it's it's so personal. But um, there's just instinctively things I think I didn't even have to sort of think about. They just it just feels like a no. So I think I considered it for a long time and what I was like willing to talk about, what I had the least amount of shame about talking about. <laughs> but the hardest stuff was more. You know, writing about writing about people that that are dead, the sort of weight of their memory sort of rests all on you to sort of memorialise, if that's the word. And I guess just guilt, guilt about sort of slagging people off. And uh, yeah, there were lots of things I said, then then took them out because I felt too guilty, even though they're dead. I just I don't want to upset people. And there's a lot of altering of facts so that people won't recognise themselves and changing of facts and things like that and uh yeah and there's a couple of times I sort of thought I've probably misremembered this and I hope I haven't and it's like I've got the best intentions but Mm. they're not around to say no it wasn't like that it just felt so guilty but I guess it's like a difficult line between well you know I'm allowed to tell this story and I shouldn't censor myself because I'm worried about who will read it because otherwise it will be boring to read. But um, it was just pangs of guilt, yeah, about people that yeah. are dead. I, I've done some stuff where I've talked about my dad, who was an alcoholic. I never did it when he was alive. And I have done it since he died because I don't have to deal with him, his opinions on me doing it, obviously. Yeah. But I do wonder every time if he came back to life what he would think about what I had said and how fair what I had said was because yeah it's still only my opinion it's still perfectly possible that I am still carrying around what a five-year-old me made of that rather than what a full-grown adult might have made of that certain situation or I didn't have all yeah all the facts or whatever so yeah it is it is hard I think yeah Definitely. I, I was shocked sometimes by how young my sort of voice became when I was writing, because I remember so exactly what it was, what my feelings were at like age 12. I remember them, you know, so vividly that it was quite easy to get inside that 12 year old's head and see what it would have been like at that age. But then I guess towards the end, there's a more sort of adult perspective, the more sort of current perspective. So that it's not all like reading a teenage diary or something, but um uh, now, see, that was the last question I was going to ask you, was um, at points you kept diaries. What was the rereading of that like, or did you not? I, to, to be honest, I couldn't find many of them. God knows where they, where they are. I found a few. A lot of it was just boring, everyday stuff, or like bad poems or whatever. I'm trying to think. I actually, like the earlier stuff, it was very sort of censored, and it wasn't actually that interesting. But then a bit, a bit later, it was. It got a lot more sort of teenage type age. It got a lot more dramatic and extreme. And I thought I could, I'm beginning to see the beginnings of sort of 
emotional intensity that would sort of carry on into into my 20s because I was just very I just remember teenage years being very just emotionally intense just everything being like operatic Mm. (laughs) and um, it was that it was that it wasn't as useful as as I thought it was going to be I guess because none of it was actually like I could lift it and you 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 know like it needed it wouldn't have fit in as a as a piece of work it was kind of upsetting but also kind of just silly like I found like a long letter I'd written to my mum when she'd gone away for work it was just sort of saying I mean she'd probably gone away for a week or something and it was this long letter just sort of saying I can't believe you've gone like when are you coming back and then at the end it sort of said I have to go now otherwise I'm going to start crying oh it's too late there's already like my tears have stained the bottom of the letter (laughs) wondering like what this water is I mean it was so so over the top she's gone away for like 10 days or something oh Um, yeah (laughs) I've I've got a letter that I went to brownie camp when I was about I don't know eight something like that and I'd spent quite a lot of time away from my parents at that point because I had a big family my mum worked so we were at my nan's house or some aunt's house for weeks on end in the summer holidays sometimes so being away from my mum wasn't necessarily the big deal that you might expect it to be but obviously for a lot of the people on this brownie trip it was a big deal so they had asked them the mums to write a letter to their kid and put it in their little bag so that they could open it when they got there and read it (laughs) and and feel like you know not homesick and I've got the one that my mum wrote me my mum said uh, and it literally says dear Hannah you are upstairs in bed I feel a bit stupid (laughs) writing this but they said I had to do it (laughs) there's just nothing there's no like I mean it probably says we love you at the bottom or something like that but it's just like your dad's asleep like on the that. sofa and it's literally not, there's no emotion in it. It's just a practical list letter. <laughs> so it, it makes me laugh so much because I think, I like to think that if I'd kept a diary as a kid, it probably would have had some great like insight to my soul. It's so but like perfunctory. It, well, I've done the letter bit. There you go. Yeah. But I think a diary, because the only, the only, I did have a diary and the, I made one thing in it. Jay said, I think it was, I don't know, I was about 11, and it said, watch Superman 2, was sick. And it's the only entry I made in the whole thing. So, yeah, I think my diary would have been quite perfunctory, yeah. yeah. I wish I could find more. I just I just don't know where they are. Yeah, but it was quite easy to access that kind of... Um, my sort of twelve inner 12-year-old is quite present, I'd say, all the time. You know, you know the way you have... Sort of 28 is very present, and 12 is very... Like, I feel like I can access those ages really quickly. I don't know why. Some yeah. people feel stuck at a certain age, don't they? Like they reached a certain age and mentally didn't. And I, I feel about 29, I think, still. I can't really remember very much about my early 20s. And I don't know if that's because, you know, I was quite wild and I probably like was drunk or like had taken drugs for a lot of it. But I think some of it's because I'm not, I'm still not sure I like that person <laughs> that I was in my early 20s. And I don't know that I want to think too deeply about what was going on in her head because I think she was a terrible, terrible mess. Yeah. God, I mean, we have to have compassion though, don't we? Like, is it your fault? Probably not. No, I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I'm sure, absolutely not. But nonetheless, would I have yeah. been friends with her? I don't know that I would. 
Yeah, it's scary. I think of situations I got into in my 20s and I just want to like go back and hug myself. It's so, oh God, it just like shouldn't, you know, just shouldn't have happened, shouldn't have been there, just didn't know otherwise. It's, yeah, it's difficult. But then I also try and um, have such a propensity for like only remembering the bad things, hence like (laughs) this book. But, you know, I try and sort of go, actually, it was also a laugh. (laughs) It was fun. It was fun. I haven't probably haven't driven that point home enough. It was. It is very funny. It does make me laugh. You managed to catch. Oh no! Sorry, I mean like my my twenties was. <laughs> oh yes, yeah, no, yeah. You're right. There are there are some jokes in the book. It's so as I get older, I tend to think, God, actually, I'd never go back. Twenties was awful, but I. It's good to remember also, like you know how fun it was, and I started watching Broad City in lockdown, and I absolutely love it. And then. God, it just made me miss, like, the adventures you'd have in your 20s so much. Mm. One reviewer had sort of said, called them, like, you know, self-absorbed. And I remember being like, oh, I didn't think they were self-absorbed. I thought they were just cool. (laughs) I don't think that's self-absorption. That's just like being in your 20s, isn't it? But I think the adventure I miss and not knowing, like, although, you know, I do, I'm lucky I get to have adventures. But, um that kind of um you know the day started one way and you had no idea how it might end kind of feeling yeah oh absolutely you'd end up somewhere that kind of randomness of you know going on a night out and meeting some people and then kind of going off with them and you end up somewhere in someone's flat at like you know that kind of that kind of not even like in a one night stand way that too but also just that thing where you're you're getting swept up in a little adventure yeah that was yeah that was lovely. I miss that Let's get misty-eyed over that there for a bit, <laughs> over our lost youth. But also there were so many points where I, my life was in danger and I didn't think about oh, it. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I absolutely shudder to think about it. I, I genuinely it? do, yeah. The, the shit that I've got up to, I mean, it's like, yeah. It starts to make you wonder if you're really lucky or... Yeah. When I think about finishing work in pubs, in places that I live, which include Portsmouth, which was rough, oh, yeah. and Sydney in Australia, which wasn't particularly, but that I would walk home night after night after night at two o'clock in the morning by myself yeah. across a park yeah. and think, when I think now, what was I? What was I thinking? Yeah. That was insane. Yeah, I remember like, yeah, to sort of like being high, walking home at 4am through mm. like the streets of Cardiff and just not giving, you know, talking to, just talking to random people, just terrifying yeah really really scary and just being so like a bit naive I think about some of the situations I've got into and especially like with blokes and stuff and weirdly I think it comes back to that thing of um that that sort of confusing message of suddenly realizing you had this kind of this sort of power once you realize this kind of sexual power that you have and that you get all this male attention once you get a certain age but at the same time this message of there's something wrong with your body it's like really confusing yeah be so desired and also hate the thing that's being desired like it's really it's just really sort of confusing and one of the things I think is really sad this sort of negative body image thing is just not knowing your kind of worth you know just Mm. sort of feeling almost grateful for male attention and it's awful you know it's so it's so damaging and dangerous I think it's just that thing of how objectified I was early on and how that leads to self-objectification for the rest of your life that you can't separate yourself out from your body in terms of how you in terms of self-esteem or I think it's got I mean it's got a hell of a lot better now 
I think especially, yeah. I mean, I was really tiny when I was little, really tiny. I've got photographs of me where I look about, I'd say four. But if you look at the age of my sister in it, I must be seven in that picture. I was just yeah. really short, really skinny, massive fat legs always my whole life, but really short and really thin. And then I didn't get tits till I was like 15. But when they came, they like came overnight. And yeah. Just remember the indignation of being taken bra shopping and being livid, livid beyond words that I was now going to have to wear one of these prisons yeah. on me. You and have someone... Yeah, you know, well, no, I refused. I refused to take my clothes off in front of uh, a lady I didn't know. So my mum just had to guess and bring endless bras in until I decided on one that I liked. And I, I say liked that I would wear under sufferance. <laughs> I remember when I first got my period that I was sort of had almost like flu-like symptoms. It was like this bizarre thing where I felt sort of terrible and I was so furious. I was like, this is every month. Are you kidding for the rest of my life? And I don't know if it's, if it was, if this is common, but it, it, it wasn't, I don't get flu-like symptoms, but it, for some reason it was just, maybe it was, it was coinciding. I don't know, but there was obviously such a big hormonal change that it seemed to just, yeah. Made me feel quite unwell, I remember, just feeling like awful. I just remember being just kind of furious and so confused and thinking my life's ruined. That's how it felt because I just felt so terrible. Well, I was really furious, but for a different reason, which I, again, it's so, I don't, I don't know that I think about this stuff much, but I was really furious because my mum told everybody. She told my dad, she told my nan, and I like came downstairs and everybody was talking about me. And it felt mm. like something that was really like an intrusion on my privacy yeah and yeah it's perfectly normal for a mum to tell her mum or her husband you know but I was livid livid about it yeah it's such an intimate thing it's so it's yeah I, I had a similar thing I can't remember if it was in the book or not but um almost like it was family gossip or something yeah it was it was really yeah, I remember I remember feeling exactly the same thing of just feeling real kind of shame and anger of like, you know, why is my body being discussed like it's not to, like like it's not mine or something. Yeah, that was that was um yeah. I run I've run out run out of steam. <laughs> Settling Katie, in. I've had you for absolutely ages, so I'm gonna let you go. Oh well it was it wasn't a hint of like, you know, I can <laughs> I have to go right now or anything. I just realised how monotonous my voice sounded. <laughs> um, <laughs> this has been really fantastic. I would advise that everybody oh, reads Delicacy because so. it's a cracking read. One of the things I found interesting about it is I, not in the same way, but I have had some hard times and you have had some hard times and you describe yourself as quite, like you say, a, a delicate person and I would regard myself as quite a tough person and I found it reassuring that the the end result is the same regardless, to be honest. Yeah. You have to work your way through it. Yeah, and that you can be both, I guess. And both is good, mm. I guess. I think going through grief makes you, again, I can't remember if I said this or not, but it, it, I felt like it made me both tougher and weaker at the same time. It's a really bizarre way in that you have to be so capable, but I cry more easily. It's like a really weird combination of... Yeah, Uh, we definitely did talk about this before, but nonetheless, I think it it bears repeating. I think my experience of the last year would have been worse had I not been toughened up by the fact that, 
you know my dad died while my mum was being treated for breast cancer yeah. so I'd, I'd had a period in my life where I was just like what more for fuck's sake and actually yeah. sort of enduring that because I, I mean that's what you do you don't you don't you yeah, just absolutely. you just endure it that enduring that meant that yeah I, kept... yeah, I feel like my armor's got tougher yeah definitely but I think when I take the armor off it's like I'm more vulnerable but the armor is thicker <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's well I thank you for reading it you've what's really thrilling because I'm just starting to you know put it out in the world yeah. it feels really scary but I it's you've really completely got it and that's great and that means a lot so that's wonderful thank you standard issue for all women